Hey, this is Joe Farinaccio from SmallTryMorans.com, and on the phone with me today, I have uh, Jim Brown. Jim, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, glad to do this, Joe. Hey, today, uh, just for a couple minutes, we're going to talk about um, the, the original uh, small trimorans. I think, Jim, uh, maybe perhaps better than anybody else on planet Earth today, has uh, can uh, share some thoughts about this, has more insight into this than maybe anybody else, because you were associated with um, Arthur P uh, Piver, right, Jim? Yes, uh, and I consider him to be the uh, the father of the modern trimoran, although he was not the first Joe. Right. Uh, he, uh, but he uh, he was the first to design a, a trimoran that really worked, that did everything that uh, the catamarans of the day did not do. And the day was uh, the mid 1950s, and. Um, uh, preceding Arthur Piver and the guy who actually coined the word trimoran was uh, uh, a, a really uh, brilliant Russian artist named Victor Chechet. T-C-H-E-T, C-H-E-T. Yeah, 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 I've seen that name many times. Yeah, and uh, Victor lived on Long Island Sound in the 1940s, and as early as 1945, he devised uh, a modern, what you might call a modern, double outrigger canoe. Uh, it had a main hull and two floats, and it was, uh, you know, the uh, built of the modern post-war materials, plywood and, and glue, <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, was uh, a very interesting step up from the ancient outrigger canoes because of the materials that were available after World War II, um, it was possible to build a really lightweight double outrigger canoe. Right. And not that the ancient boats were heavy. Um, in fact, uh, no doubt the, uh, the Stone Age Pacific double outrigger canoes were wonderfully light for the materials and the uh, skills available to the builders at the time, the technology at the time. But when uh, plywood came along and fiberglass and stuff like that, it became possible to build them really light. And in my view, that is the single most distinguishing thing between the ancient multi-hulls and the modern multi-hulls is lightweight. Finally possible to build them really light. The modern catamaran had come really at about the same time. Um, and there was a, uh, there's a lot to say about uh, the catamarans as they were, and we can talk about that sometime. Right. So um, uh, in the mid-1940s, the modern Hawaiian catamarans emerged at the hands of uh, particularly uh, Woody Brown, no relation to me. But um, the trimaran, which is what we're talking about here, the small trimaran website, well, where did the small trimaran really come from? Well, right. it came from Victor Chechet. And uh, and uh, and yet uh, it was clear that the, that the configuration, the basic configuration that Chechet evolved, was not adequate. It was not a good boat. It was like the catamarans of the day, designed particularly by a guy named uh, Skip Krieger in Southern California, and he offered kits for small catamarans. And Piver had built one of those in San Francisco Bay, sailed it in San Francisco Bay, 
and found that it had the same problems as Victor Chechet's early trimarans, which were, <laughs> A, the boats were very slow in tacking. That is, it was difficult to work them around through the wind. Second, they would not go to windward very well. In fact, some of them were very poor to windward, uh, climbing against the wind. And third, you couldn't really steer them downwind. Uh, they would go like the devil on a reach, and uh, if you push them hard enough, uh, it was quite a surprise to have them dive the lee bow and either come to a stop or somersault. Mm. And, um, and uh, Piver had that experience in San Francisco Bay with his early Krieger-designed catamaran, and he was in touch with a guy named, let's see, the guy's name who founded the Amateur Yacht Research Society was John Moorwood. Amateur Yacht Research Society, A-Y-R-S. I've written okay. about this in my book, Joe, but it's more right. fun to tell the story than it is yep. to read it. <laughs> yep. And uh, uh, Moorwood had published in his little amateur bulletins uh, the work of Victor Chechet and Chechet's analysis of, uh, of uh, the, the problems with the boat, and they were so similar to the problems that Piver was having almost 10 years later. We're talking about 1956, 7, 8 now. Piver uh, started corresponding with Moorwood and saying, well, you know, we, we can do better than that. What, what are we going to do to make these things that uh, seem to be so much fun and yet are so difficult to handle? But the, the truth is that it was John Moorwood that suggested to Piver that he do three things in order to improve on the, on the trimaran. Okay. And these three things are, are really pretty interesting. First of all, the, uh, the, the main hull of Piver's first so-called, what I call his, his perfect trimaran, that is one that really worked, the main hull had rocker. It had a V-shaped bottom in section, and it was fairly deep amidships, and it came up to be shallow toward each end. And what that did was it, it made it possible for the main hull to turn easily. It could sweep its shallow ends through the turn. Second, the outrigger hulls, the floats as we called them then, and, and uh, now they're called the amas, but I still call them floats, they were mounted on the main hull so that when the boat was headed into the wind, so that there was n very little, if any, healing effort on the boat, the floats were just barely touching the surface of the water. And that meant that the main hull had to pick the floats up in the middle of the tack as the vessel was coming through the wind at the point where normally the old catamarans and the old trimarans would get stopped by trying to drag their hulls through the turn. The, uh, the Piver trimaran picked the floats up almost so they were just barely touching the water. And incidentally, in Piver's first trimaran, which was a 16-footer that he called Frolic, the bottoms of the floats were flat. That is, they had ski-shaped bottoms. And so when this thing came up so that the floats were barely touching the water, they spanked. They would slap. But uh, it was permissible to do that in a small boat. We later learned the hard way that you couldn't do that in a larger boat. 
but the the, uh, the the frolic trimaran could easily carry its floats through the turn at the very point when the vessel's headed into the wind, and the power is turned off. The sails are luffing, and in fact, you've got the windage of the mast and sails, the sails luffing, and all the rigging and the boat and everything. The windage is trying to stop the boat. Right at that point is where the early multi-hulls became so difficult to maneuver. They'd end up in irons and start to go backwards, and you had to reverse the rudder and back the jib in order to get her going on the new tack, and she would come out of that maneuver going backwards. And so the, the vessels were not tactical. You couldn't really get them to sweep, as they say in monohull lingo, to get them to shoot through the turn mm -hmm. and come out onto the new tack still moving forward. And, uh, and so Piver figured out that he had to be able to drag these floats through, through the turn by lifting them out of the water and carrying them on a main hull whose ends were shallow enough to be easily swept through the turn. Swept, each end has to sweep sideways as the boat turns. The stern right. sweeps downwind and the bow sweeps upwind and so forth. And then the other thing that Piver did, well, there's actually two more things, is that he put a serious dagger board in the boat. None of the early multi-hulls had serious lateral resistance. They, uh, uh, they were intended for operating from the beach in the case of the Hawaiian catamarans, and, and, uh, and they had to have very shallow rudders and ideally no center boards or dagger boards at all because the boats would, of course, sit on the beach and, uh, and the surf would grind the bottom into the sand and into the shells. And if you had a, an aperture in the bottom, a slot through which the board would operate, that made the, the, the aperture vulnerable to damage. And so most of the very early multi-hulls, catamarans and trimarans, had no center boards. And this, of course, um, uh, made, uh, did nothing but aggravate the maneuvering problem. And so Piver put a, a, a dagger board in the frolic that had aspect. That is, it was much deeper than it is wide. And that so-called aspect in a foil is what really makes it efficient. It gives it the flow lines over the leading edge, the vertical leading edge of the center board is where the boat is able to really hang onto the water and keep from sliding sideways. And he did the same thing with the rudder. That is, they put a, a reasonable rudder in the boat. Uh, the, uh, the dagger board had an aspect of about two and a half or three. That is, it was almost three times deeper than it was wide. And the center board had an aspect of at least two. That is, it was two times deeper than it was wide. And those were proportions recommended by John Morewood. And so uh, uh, Piver combined these features in the, uh, in the early uh, frolic trimaran, about 1957. And uh, he did a couple of other things, too, that uh, really uh, made a big difference in the, in the problem of diving the lee bow. That was that the mast was mounted rather far aft in the main hull. The boat had a small four-triangle, that is the jib, the area occupied by the jib, was rather small, and the jib stay did not go to the masthead. It only went up three-quarters of the way to the top of the mast. 
And furthermore, it came down to the deck well aft of the stem head. That is, it was the, 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 the jib was mounted two feet aft of the bow of the main hull. And then the real power in the, in the, in the boat was the mainsail, and it had a long boom, relatively long boom, meaning a low-aspect mainsail, but it had some real area in it. And the, uh, the mast that Piver devised for the frolic was a, a, a really a, a Rube Goldberg contraption that worked extremely well. The mast was made out of a long 2x4. It was only 2 inches by 4 inches in section, even smaller than that after it was planed down and shaped to give it a teardrop section. And that mast was not nearly strong enough to stand on its own with just the shrouds, as in a modern beach cat that have two shrouds plus the jib stay, uh, as in the modern beach cat so-called three-wire rig. Uh, a two-by-four mast would n not have been nearly stiff enough to stand in column. And so Piver fitted it with diamond stays. And uh, these are kind of interesting. They have uh, uh, a spreader, uh, actually two sets of spreaders on the mast. And uh, the upper spreader was located at the point where the jib stay attached to the mast, that is, at, uh, about three-quarters of the way up, even less, okay. even two-thirds of the way up in, in some boats. And, uh, and there, so there was a spreader there, and the wires that led from the masthead over the ends of these spreaders came back to the mast at a point about one-third up from the deck. And at that point, there was another spreader with similar wires that led from the point where the jib stay attaches out over the lower spreaders and back down to the base of the mast. So you end up with a uh, so-called double diamond rig. And uh, diamond stays are not very popular anymore. They have problems. It's very difficult to tune the rig. If one of them breaks, you have no redundancy. The mast is definitely coming down. But uh, in a little boat, uh, Piper got away with it. And, and this rig had the advantage that the 2x4 mast had such a, a, a small section, it, it, its tube, the girth of its, of its uh, section was so small that it did not significantly disturb the airflow over the leading edge of the mainsail. It did not rotate as such as in the modern beach cat rig, but its section was still small enough that it gave the mainsail unreasonable power. Uh, the, the double diamonds definitely did create windage, and in a strong wind you could hear them howling. Uh, and any noise coming out of the upstairs is just nothing but drag. But still, it allowed the mainsail to develop so much power that this little boat could really go. You know, it was a marvelous thing. Uh, and uh, uh, you could push it really hard without diving the bow. It would tack dependably every time you put the helm down. That baby would end up on a new tack and come out of the tack without being dead in the water. And, uh, and then uh, downwind, when we started playing with these things out in the Golden Gate, sailing them downwind to get back in, <laughs> uh, 
um, you could steer them even in surfing conditions. They, you could really steer them between the center board and the rudder, the deep board and the deep rudder with aspect. You could really control the boat on the face of the wave. And it was just a marvelous sensation. I had never sailed in a boat like that in my life. I, I, I had very little small boat experience at that time. My background was in big boats. And uh, sailing a big boat downwind and breaking waves was all, especially schooners with their huge, long main booms, um, they, they became, uh, you know, man killers. Right. But, but this little boat was, was like a dinghy. It really was like an outrigger stabilized dinghy. And uh, so uh, um, when I met Arthur Piver, he had one of these so-called frolic trimarans, and I've written about that thing. It was a really <laughs> quite a contraption, uh, almost offensive in its appearance, but it's, uh, you, know, you had to see it move in order to believe in it. And uh, uh, the first time I went out with, with Arthur Piver to sail in that thing in the Golden Gate, I was dumbfounded by its its capabilities absolutely overwhelmed by the uh, the 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 ability of this uh, little collection of plywood boxes to contend with the conditions in the Golden Gate. 